Here we are coming to you from the Upper West Stand. I'm here with Joe Brooker. Joe has just walked out onto the stands for his first ever Tottenham Hotspur Stadium experience. How are you finding it, Joe? What's this like? Well, I mean, my mind is blown. It is absolutely crazy. It's capacity. I'm just taking it in. It's amazing. We're feeling pretty good about the lineup. Uh, we've had a look. Our team looks good, though. What do you make of our lineup today? Yeah, I, I was being very negative as you got frustrated about on the last episodes. And I, I must admit, I'm feeling good after seeing the lineup today. That is exactly what I wanted to hear. I've got a good feeling about it. What's your prediction? I'm going to put you on the spot, Joe. Well, I mean, look, let's, let's be super confident here. 2-1 Spurs. You heard it here first. That's us for now. We'll have another one at half time. Come on, you Spurs. So, Joe, it's half time. You've got to be pleased with that half, right? I'm very pleased. That was far more solid and secure than I expected. That so we had all of the ball, they were limited to counts for attacks. But we're winning every 50-50. You've got to be pleased with the spirit, the fight of our team. I really am. I think uh, Ndombele has been pretty outstanding, but I'm especially happy with how Dyer has been taking care of Lukaku so far. Very calm. Definitely. So I've offered you a nil-nil now. Would I take a nil-nil? No, Certainly not, no, I, 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 I'd like to see a bit more. I think, I think this is, it's there for the taking. We're joined by Elio. Elio, after that half, do you make us favourites? <laughs> it's always worrying when you control a game, have a few good opportunities and don't take them. You think it could be one of those games? Let's hope Chelsea don't come back with something more in the second half, because so far it's our game. I think we've converted Joe. He was so pessimistic a couple of days ago. He thinks we're going to win now. Joe, do you stand by it? I, I'm standing by my 2-1 prediction from the start of the game. Who's going to get our goal to win it? Oh, I said Ndombele and Son at the start of the game, so I'll, I'll stick with that, to be honest. Tell you. I'm going to go Romero from a corner. Bold. I like it. One up from this set piece, and they have done. Thiago Silva. There's a brilliant header into that far corner. And it's brilliant football from Chelsea. Conte decides to have a go. It's deflected and it's 2-0 Chelsea. This is a proper performance from Chelsea in the first 10 minutes of this second half. They're all over Spurs. And that's Rudiger and they've got three. And it's Tony Rudiger who runs to the Chelsea fans in that far corner. Well, f***. Here's Deli Alli. Here's Lucas Moura. Oh! Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Plus Dave podcast, a Tottenham Hotspur themed show brought to you by an assortment of Tottenham fans and a Leeds fan called Dave. Dave is here to provide us with just a dash of impartiality and a whole bucket load of trolling. Dave, how are you today? You must be loving watching Spurs at the moment. I mean, I've obviously joined this group and started to actually have to watch 90 minutes of Spurs football at the right time. I am sorry. Yeah, it's okay. You know, I've got to break the Sunday up somehow. But uh, no, it was a very interesting watch and I'm sure we'll get into it in a bit. But yeah, positives and negatives, I think. Yep, you're absolutely right. We will be getting into it very, very shortly. Before we go further, of course, we are going to be talking in great detail about the Chelsea match. Uh, a match that I was lucky enough, well, lucky in inverted commas, enough to attend alongside Joe as well. We're going to be looking forward to the Arsenal game next week, of course, which is a huge game. We're also going to have a bit of a chat later on, just generally about the Spurs-Arsenal rivalry. Just looking back over the years, this is the North London Derby special. So we're going to be talking about some of our favourite goals, favourite memories, favourite moments. Just all about what it means to be a Spurs fan in the North London Derby rivalry. While we're here, another quick thank you to all of our listeners from last week. It's great to see so many of you have come back. We were not sure if we were going to be a one-episode wonder, but fantastic 
fantastic to see that so many people have come and listened again, especially given that we lost. We all know how hard it is to watch Match of the Day when Spurs have lost. So extra kudos to you guys who are coming back and listening to us after that game against Crystal Palace. And we're hoping that despite the result this week, we're going to see a lot of you come back for that one next week as well. So all that to look forward to. I'd like to welcome back some guests. First of all, Joe Bricker, welcome back again. You had your first Tottenham Hotspur Stadium experience this week. Tell us about that. How was that? Well, I mean, quite a roller coaster of emotions, really. We started off on a real high. It was super exciting to see the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium for the first time. I thought the atmosphere was electric. Certainly at the start, I think the last 10 minutes, a little bit more negative, perhaps. But really loved it. Obviously, great hanging out with you guys. Good seeing you, Elio, and, and Pricey, who's not on this week. Yeah, I mean, that is a stadium that really needs to have a, a club playing Champions League football there, I think. So uh, we need to hurry <laughs> up and get back in the top four. So your experience hasn't put you off? I'll probably come back, I suspect. Brilliant. Well, I hope you do. And welcome back to Elio as well. Elio, how are you feeling this week? It's difficult to know quite how to feel because I still believe that there are promising things to speak about with this team at the moment. But I'd also long since forgotten, thanks to the pandemic, the painful uh, experience of going to White Hart Lane or the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium all the way from North Hampshire, witnessing a horrible defeat and then having a three-hour journey home ahead of me afterwards. So, so I'm still recovering. Fair enough. I think a lot of people are in the same boat there, but I have no doubt that you'll be back. You're a glutton for punishment. I do love the way that we've had a lot of friends and listeners joke about they're looking forward to how we're going to get ground down as the season goes on. And you can just tell two minutes into the third episode how down everybody is. <laughs> hey, speak for yourself. I'm looking at the positives. I don't know about you guys, but if that's the case, I'm going to be dragging you all up. One man who I'm sure will be nothing but positive is the newest member of our team, who I'm delighted to say joins us today. A man who combines the sharp mind of an ancient Greek philosopher with the flair of a Brazilian mastermind. And that is, of course, Socrates. Socks, welcome to the team. How are you? F***ing hell. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how I'm ever supposed to live up to that, to be quite honest with you. But thank you for having me anyway. Is anyone else feeling aggrieved? They didn't get an introduction as good as that. But, uh, but no, welcome, Socks. Great to have you. And obviously, you're a long-suffering season ticket holder. And you've been going for how many years now? Uh, I think my first season as a season to Golder was 0304. I think we started with Hoddle that year. But I'm pretty sure he got wow. sacked about a month in, and then it was David Pleat as an interim. And then I think Santini was the one who took over from the season after. So in a way, I kind of got lucky because I joined up around the time Martin Yol took over, which was sort of the peak, or at least the time where, in the modern era of Spurs anyway, we started getting relatively decent. So I kind of missed out on the 90s, the kind of much maligned, 90s which I've heard so much about but I was sort of too young to really experience the horror of the sugar years thankfully. You've been through some rough times so give yourself some credit you fought your way through and you've been going for a long time so I commend you for that. Obviously I know you've been going with uh, your brother and your dad for many years but you, you've also had the pleasure of uh, attending slash watching many games with Elio. How would you describe that experience? Uh, colourful. I mean, if I go too into detail, there's going to be a lot more bleeps in about a couple of minutes in. But I do remember, I remember my first game actually, which wasn't with Elio, but I think I borrowed his dad's season ticket to sit with my dad and it was in the West Upper and we were at home to Derby County and I think it was 98, 99 and I must have been about six or seven years old. 
And I remember like the novelty of seeing the players on the pitch for the first time. Mm. And it was like kind of going to Disneyland or something. You know, White Hart Lane and the old kind of fashion stadiums were so tight to the pitch. And I remember about 30 minutes in, we conceded and I just burst into tears and I couldn't stop crying. <laughs> and all of the adults in the West Upper sort of surrounding my dad just started laughing at me. <laughs> so we had from 30 minutes, it went from Disneyland to a group of adults essentially bullying just a small fat child. <laughs> so it went, it went very, very dark, very, very quickly. But kind of mercifully, we equalised in the second half, I think via Tim Sherwood, and then sort of the magic was back again. So I kind of owe Tim Sherwood a lot. You might not have come back otherwise. That, that could yeah, have been the well, end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that might be a blessing in disguise. So maybe I don't know him as much as I thought, but uh, that was kind of the start of it all for me. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, welcome to the team. It's great to have you and look forward to hearing your thoughts on obviously the game gone by, the game ahead, and everything we'll get into in a short while. But before we do... It wouldn't be right to go any further without talking about the sad news that we heard on Sunday morning right before the game. Of course, the football world and Tottenham fans lost a legend in Jimmy Greaves, who passed away at the age of 81. Jimmy was, of course, our all-time record goal scorer and a man who transcended Tottenham Hotspur. Excellent for England, excellent for Tottenham and indeed every other team that he played for. And the all-time leading goal scorer in the top flights of English football, I think a lot of people forget. A lot of focus is always placed on Alan Shearer and his record in the Premier League specifically, but it's easy to overlook that Greaves' record was incredible. Winner of two FA Cups with us and, of course, the Cup Winners' Cup. By all accounts, a real character as well. We've all seen the clips from St. Greavesy and interviews of him over the years. And it got me thinking, when the news broke, we were texting. Elio, one of the first things you said was, oh no, my dad's going to be so sad. And of course, you mentioned before that your dad grew up watching that team in the 60s and Joe, the same with you. What does Jimmy Greaves mean to you as somebody who, as with all of us, never really saw him play? But how would you sum up Jimmy Greaves to Tottenham? It's impossible to know how true this is, but I feel that a lot of us may not even be supporters of Spurs if it wasn't for Jimmy Greaves, because yes, we won the double without him, but we then went and bought him and he was involved in sustained success over the rest of that decade, which, as every Spurs fan knows, is by far the best decade in our history. He was pivotal in, in so many great games. We became the first English club to win a serious European trophy with him as our main goal scorer. He set an incredible standard that hasn't been matched since as a goal scorer while playing in our colours. And with that kind of law that comes out of someone like that, you then develop an entire romance about the club and whatever we already had because of being the first sort of modern era club to do the double, he enhanced. Joe, do you think it would be fair to say there's a chance you might not be a Spurs fan today had it not been for the likes of Jimmy Greaves? Yeah, that's an amazing point, actually, Elio, when you said that. I think there's probably more truth to that than you probably realise because, uh, as you say, wasn't there for the double, but very much embodied 1960s Spurs, Bill Nicholson Spurs. So, And, of course, everything he achieved with England as well. So I think that's that's probably really true. He's probably the reason why there's so many people that in the 90s when Spurs were punching below their weight, there were so many players that were attracted by the proposition of coming up to North London because of the history that, that he'd got rolling for us. We're talking about a guy that Bill Nicholson, who was very notorious for wanting a very hardworking, very sort of every player doing everything style of football and very hard training as well. We're talking about a guy that Bill Nicholson bought to improve that side, despite the fact that Greaves would probably jog about a tenth of the rest of the sides in the match. I mean, there was a story I heard about him yesterday that Martin Chivers once told about how when he signed for Spurs as quite a young player, wants to make a great 
great first impression on Bill Nicholson, all that kind of thing. They'd all gone for sort of their 10-mile run or whatever it was they were doing pre-season. And Chivers ended up sort of at the back jogging along with Greaves. Greaves just slowed him right down. And all of a sudden, right in front of them, while sort of all the younger players had kind of gone off into the distance, this lorry appeared and Greaves just goes to him, right, let's stop now, jump in the back of this. And it took them all back to the training ground ahead of (laughs) everybody else. Eddie Bailey, who was our assistant manager, who was our coach at the time, basically twigged straight away, something's not right here. There's no way Jimmy is beating the rest of the side back to the ground. But that's how good he was, that he didn't need to be as fit. He didn't need to be as disciplined as everybody else. And he he just needed to get the ball. And before anyone knew it, it was in the back of the net. No one seems to be able to compare him to any modern day player. And I think that's because of how unique a forward he was. It's funny you should say that, actually, talking about comparisons with modern players. We met up with you and your dad for the match the other day at the game, and we were watching the West Ham-Man United game while we were waiting for our game to start. And Ronaldo had just put the ball in the net, and I got talking to him about you know how ridiculous it is that Ronaldo's still going at 35. And, and your dad actually said, like, Greaves is on that level. And you think of how much effort Ronaldo has put into building himself up and his fitness and everything. And then you talk about Greaves in that tone and how he almost had another gear to go into and could have actually potentially been even better. But uh, I also love just his sense of humor and some of the things you hear him having said. There's a quote that's been going around on Twitter. I can't remember it exactly, but it's something along the lines of, oh, I had a goal drought once. It was the worst 15 minutes of my life <laughs> and things like that. And it's also telling that he he obviously loved Spurs. I mean, I know he played for a lot of other teams, but Spurs seems to have been his, his spiritual home. And the, the quote that's attributed to him was, the biggest regret of my whole football career was leaving White Hart Lane in 1970. My interest in football weakened after that. I was heartbroken. So, you know, it's hard not to hear something like that and get emotional. And I think there's an argument to say he's our greatest ever player. Definitely greatest ever striker. That's not even an argument. But greatest ever player, yeah. There's maybe a handful of other players, most of whom played in the double side, that you could compare to him in the impact they had on the club. Well, very sad news indeed. And obviously, our thoughts are with all of Jimmy's friends and family. And of course, all of those who grew up watching him. Very, very sad to see one of your childhood heroes pass away. I can't really add anything from a Spurs perspective on Greaves. Obviously, he was a legend. But I think I can relate to it because obviously you you guys, I'm sure, are aware that in lockdown, COVID times, we've lost arguably four of our greatest ever players in Trevor Cherry, Jack Charlton, Peter Lorimer and Norman Hunter. So I can't really add anything to this apart from saying that I, I do feel your loss. It's strange, isn't it? It's one of those things, until it happens, you don't really realise the importance of a player. I mean, it it seems almost a bit far-fetched to be sad about someone you never watched or never knew, but it just shows what an influence he's had on the club and on the philosophy and the culture and everything that comes with it. So absolutely very sad news. And obviously we we wish everyone associated with him the best. It was almost fitting in a way, I suppose, that it had to happen on the day of Spurs-Chelsea. And I guess it was good that the two teams could come together and, and celebrate his life and, and mourn him on the pitch and have that nice tribute to him at the beginning of the game. We need to talk about that game. We we were at it. We, we sat on the sidelines. We... Uh, we got a little bit too excited. We probably got ahead of ourselves slightly. One thing no one's going to argue on, I think we can all agree, it was the proverbial game of two halves, wasn't it? I mean, we were a lot better in the first half than we were in the second half. Chelsea made some changes. There were some substitutions on both sides. I think it's quite clear that Kante had more than a marginal impact on the game. And we all know what a fantastic player he is. But 
Joe, do you think it's as simple as Tuchel making that change and bringing on Kante and him having that much of an impact to switch the balance of the game? Or do you think there are more factors at play here? It's really difficult to say because the thing that I think about a lot with this is the lack of intensity that we seem to have in the second half because I felt really good when I saw the starting eleven. And when we saw the team announced, we were a little bit surprised to see, you know, Romero starting at the back and Dombele being rewarded for his midweek performance, going straight back in the team was, was good to see. And we just looked really good, really solid. I felt that we were really competing with what is an outstanding midfield. And that just didn't seem to be there in the second half. I guess some of it would have been fitness related for someone like Ndombele. Kante was outstandingly good as soon as he came on which shouldn't be a shock based on who he is I mean personally I think he should be more in the conversation for the Ballon d'Or in terms of how important he was for Chelsea winning the Champions League last season Kane was sort of in it in the first half and I think Son being a surprise inclusion was great because it it seemed to cause the Chelsea defence a bit of a worry where they were just really concerned about those runs Son was making which gave Kane a bit more room and he thought this is great Kane can maybe drop more into that sort of number 10 role that he likes to have in work a bit more on playmaking but Kane just disappeared in the second half and it was difficult figuring out what was going wrong tactically. The lineup was promising I think we were all pretty pleased when we saw the lineup especially in light of the game against Ren seeing Ndombele in the starting lineup there wasn't a particularly defense heavy midfield it looked like an ambitious team it looked like a team that was there to go and attack Chelsea and play as the home team. Socks I never got your thoughts at the beginning of the game but when you saw that lineup what were you thinking? I mean, before I saw the lineup, I was kind of fearing the worst and I kind of thought we would get hammered. But I think the context of the performance was a lot different in spite of the actual result itself, even though I wasn't too surprised by the outcome. But I think like you guys said, it was pretty much the team that if we could have laid out a perfect team with everybody fit, you know, maybe somebody would have had Lucas or Bergwijn in there over another player, maybe over Delhi or something like that. But there weren't too many positions. I was sort of surprised to see um, La Celso, but certainly Romero in there, but I think the thing that encouraged me was that in all of our games this season, whether we've won, lost or drawn, this was the first performance, even though it only lasted 45 minutes, where I was really, really encouraged. And we looked like an attacking, aggressive side with a plan. And when you take into account that the team would have only trained on Friday and Saturday, I think Chelsea played on Tuesday, we played on Thursday, and the South American players, two of whom started, only really trained on the Saturday, it's not as if we had a week to really kind of work on this. It was very limited time. So I was kind of really encouraged with that first half. And like Joe alluded to, when you can bring on a player of N'Golo Kante's quality, who is maybe the best player in the world in his position, certainly one of the best midfielders in the world. And we turn to our bench and the equivalent player in an equivalent position is 21-year-old Oliver Skip, who I think we all like, but and has a bright future ahead of him, but is not on the same planet at the moment. Mm. And in terms of kind of offensive options, I saw a lot of people criticizing Nuno and saying, well, he should have changed it earlier. I mean, the only real offensive option we had on the bench was Brian Hill. And aside of that, it was Dane Scarlett. So I'm I'm kind of loath to be too critical about it. I think the defeat is a consequence of playing a very, very good side who are further ahead of us in their development and who have a deeper squad. And it's difficult to say if it's 25% this or 30% that. But I saw enough, I don't know if my expectations are just incredibly low, but I saw enough breadcrumbs in the first half to look at it and go, do you know what, maybe in three months down the line, when you're playing a decent side like a Southampton or Aston Villa, but not a Chelsea, if you can replicate that first half performance and maybe you do it over an hour, that's enough to win you that game. But against a team like Chelsea, who, let's be fair, have conceded one goal in the league this season, it was a penalty at Anfield, which is the hardest ground, I think, to go to in the league. They played half of that match with 10 men and they didn't concede another goal. 
it was a game of fine margins and they had that little bit extra quality. So I'm not too despondent or anything like that, even though, you know, we hate losing to them. I think there are more positives than negatives. I will say the one negative, and I think the thing that sort of stuck out to me the most was you go 2-0 down, I think there's half an hour left. You're at home, it's a London derby. You hate these guys about as much as you hate anyone else. You've got the context of Greaves and the heads just dropped. And mentally, I think we went and I, I watched it at home. So I don't know if it was different from you guys in the stadium, but the body language, apart from maybe Hoiberg, Dyer and a couple of others, it just looked off. I wouldn't mind too much if it was an isolated incident, but I feel like we could have been recording this a year ago and be saying the same thing about the same sorts of players. So that was more so than the result because you're going to lose to these good sides. What happens if we go 1-0 down against Arsenal? Are we going to mentally switch off again? That's the thing in the long term that does concern me. Eddie, I'll come to you in just a second. I know you're itching to get your contribution in, but just on those last two points, I just, just wanted to read out a, a tweet from Matt Law from The Telegraph. He said, last weekend, Chelsea could call on the European Footballer of the Year to steady the midfield. And this weekend, it was a midfielder who should really win the Ballon d'Or. Their other sub, Timo Werner, assisted the third. Chelsea's bench could be the difference in the title race. And certainly it, it did seem like towards the latter stages of that game, it had an impact on us. Elio, what are your thoughts? I mean, in terms of what Sox surmised there everything he said is spot on in my opinion I think a really big factor in that was in combination with Conte coming on the fatigue element from our own players uh, we had I think two or three players making their first starts in the league this season in La Celso Romero and and Dombele forgive me if there's anyone I've forgotten there as well we had Emerson only playing his second game these are guys who haven't trained together they've been training separately for the past week as well Dyer and Son haven't trained since quite a few days now I mean Son since the middle of the international break because of his injury and Dyer since last weekend against Palace when he hobbled off so pretty much all preparation for this game had gone out of the window and hopefully now with a week against the next derby especially if someone else like Lucas comes back fit I don't think Bergwijn will be from the pictures I saw earlier uh, all those players have a bit more cohesiveness and a bit better fitness level so I think with Conte coming on them wrestling back the midfield and our players probably being dead on their feet after about 45 minutes as a collective and Harry Kane does not look fit to me in the slightest either a lot of people are saying that it's an attitude thing. I'm inclined to think that this is a guy who had no preseason and is now having his usual August. I just don't think he's the yeah. most naturally fit human being, to tell you the truth. So because of all this, I think it conspired to give us a literal game of two halves, which is a shame because, as Zuck said, the first half was by far our best performance under Nuno. It's a performance that, in my opinion, if we replicate that against 15 of 20 teams in the league, we'll beat them. Obviously, not every time. It's not rocket science, but we will overpower and overwhelm most teams playing like that. It was the first time we've pressed since peak pock years in that way. It was a far more pleasing performance. And the real shame of it was we did have opportunities. Son and Kane both miscontrolled through on goal. Reguilon absolutely messed up across when it was easier to find his man when we were three against two. One of those goes in and the players then get that extra energy of the stadium exploding and it gets you over the line. But the way it transpired, Tuchel did what he does very well, stole the game away from us and hit us where it hurts. I mean, there's a reason why Guardiola can't beat this guy either with an even more expensive set of players. So I don't want to hammer the team for what happened yesterday, but I do agree that the heads dropping stunk a little bit in the second half and I hope that's addressed in the coming week because that'll be unacceptable against Arsenal. 
There definitely does seem to be an issue with fitness. You mentioned Kay, and I think Ndombele is another one that, for me, looked really tired the minute he came out for the second half. His touch suddenly became a lot heavier. He just looked like a different player to the first half and certainly to the player we saw against Ren. And it's something that Nuno has actually touched on in terms of, you mentioned it there, preparation and the time we've had to work with this group of players. And it's something that needs to be addressed. And um, I've got a quote from Alistair Gold's recent article on the game. And he said, when the Spurs boss talks about having a lack of time to work with his players, it's difficult to disagree with him. However frustrated the fans are, with some even calling for his head already, he's had no real sustained time at all to change the mentality of a squad and stamp his mark on it. It took Maurizio Pochettino until November of his first season to start shaping his Tottenham Hotspur with some dreadful results before that. But the knives already seem to be out for Espirito Santo for some. And I think that's easy for some people to, to forget right I mean he really hasn't had that much time to work with what is a heavily depleted squad full of injuries and and deportations and all kinds of issues and a busy schedule and a hurricane transfer issue I think the biggest thing that works against Nuno and I'm not sure if Sox will agree with me on this but I know that he shares the same message board with me and sees a lot of comments in common with me I think one of the biggest things working against Nuno is that he's not Maurizio Pochettino and because of that, anything less than a 9 out of 10 every week is going to get people saying Nuno out. The issue that we've got, and it's not Nuno's fault, is that he's walked into a fan base that has very little patience. And he's done nothing to kind of cause that impatience. But we basically suffered 18 months of Jose Mourinho football. And that was preceded by 12 months of a Pochettino the end of that era, which was really papered over the cracks by that Champions League final, like we did not play at all well, we were not fit, we insisted on playing that stupid diamond again and again. We won one league game away from home in his last full calendar year with us. And then we had Daniel Levy make the statement in May about Tottenham DNA. You had the context of the European Super League. You have us paying the most expensive ticket prices everywhere. There's a lot negative about the club at the moment. And Nuno's kind of walked in and it's not really his mess to clear up, but he's almost getting a lot of that anger because I think from a fan's point of view, realistically, you know you're not going to get the owner out. You know that the players can only be sold in a transfer window. So I think the only kind of power you have as a fan is to sort of wave the white hanky as they do in like Madrid and call for the head of the manager because you know that that's the easiest thing to change. And I do feel sorry for Nuno and you touched upon it there, I guess, in terms of Alistair Gold's article. I remember Poch's first season. We played two good games that year, genuinely two. They were at home to Arsenal, at home to Chelsea. We were woeful throughout a lot of that season. We finished fifth by the skin of our teeth on the last day. And that's only because Liverpool shipped six away at Stoke. We did it on goal difference. But if you remember that season, we lost 3-0 at home to Liverpool, 4-1 away to City. We lost 3-0 away to Stoke. We had the Harry Kane deflected free kick. We were scraping by, very, very similar to what we're doing at the moment. And we had... I think Poch's first six games were two wins, two draws and two defeats. So he wasn't exactly pulling up any trees. And it took midway through his second season for us to become the team that we now will look back on and go, wow, what an incredible team that was. So having kind of been through that process, and you know what, you can look at Klopp at Liverpool for something similar. In his first season, he finished eighth and lost in two cup finals. And it took him four years to win something. You know, Champions League came in season four and the Premier League in season five. You know, could you imagine if they'd sacked him at any point in season sort of one, two or three? So while I understand the disgruntlement from the fans and I think Nuno out is a really easy thing to kind of hashtag when you're angry five minutes after kickoff, we need to sort of view this from the lens of it being a two or three year project. And we are, what, two months into the project? We've got players that have barely been in the country for three weeks, for Christ's sake. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, football fans have short memories in general and uh, very, very little patience. And there, there are so many examples of that throughout his football history. You think back to infamously Alex Ferguson, who was allegedly nearly sacked before going on to, you know, build this dynasty. And I think it didn't help either the fact that we went through about nine different managerial candidates before finally settling on Nuno, which didn't help with people's expectations and obviously the, the, the patience there. We've all said that the first half was probably the best football that we've played this season so far, despite the fact that it didn't actually amount to any goals. A couple of tweets here, one here from THFC since 76, saying, We cannot complain today. Attacking lineup, intent there, front foot football, lots of fights. Better final ball or touch a few times let us down. We just need to keep it up for 96 minutes, which I think sums it up, really. And, and Dave, when Elio mentioned earlier that it's the best we've seen us play this season, you were nodding your head. I mean, you watched the game. What do you think of the first half, first of all? Yeah, definitely the best you've played this season. The commentary on Sky noticed this as well, but you know, I, I think Chelsea were genuinely shocked that you were willing to go for it against them, to be honest, and, and that almost took them by surprise. And that was a real positive and really what you wanted to see from a home team against a team even of Chelsea's stature. But I think the second half was a, a bit of a, a sobering one. And I think the problem here is that football is all about reflections. It's all about looking at another team and saying why aren't we as good as that team and you have to remember that you're at a different point in the journey I, I agree with everything you guys have just said in the sense that he hasn't had enough time with the team but at the same time you can even go back from that you can say like Lampard was sacked because he's not a real football manager and is an absolute charlatan but Tuchel was in like in five minutes first choice done Tottenham Nuno wasn't even on the shortlist if you believe certain people when they were looking for the manager to replace that unspecial guy yeah, Ryan Mason. Um, but <laughs> I think the, the the difference is, you know, you're at a different point in the journey and certain things just look different when you're looking at Chelsea and you're looking at Tottenham. And you could easily go full power hashtag Nuno out at some of the things that happened. For example, it's nil-nil, you're playing well. It's like football manager. You can go, right, okay, keep it up, lads. Everybody's going well. That's the generic response Throw your water at half time, right? Throw a water bottle maybe, yeah. But yeah. keep it up, everybody's going well keep doing what you're doing and the result will come that's what i've heard i've heard that one before whereas tuchel changed everything brought on a dmc to replace his most creative midfielder and absolutely battered you in the second half with a really really powerful performance the first 10 minutes just it was just breathtaking the the amount it changed between the end of the first half and the start of the second was really impressive and i think matt law's got a point i don't think it's going to be the title for them but i think it definitely defines them as being a obvious for the top four and I think that might be the difference between you guys and the top four and I'm sticking with my fifth prediction from the start because I just think them City Liverpool they're another level and Man United are lucky yeah I suppose that there is no shame in losing to a team as good as Chelsea I mean it would have been nice if it wasn't 3-0 but I think we can all agree that was probably slightly flattering a result one observation I had and I'm curious to see if anyone else agrees with me or anyone else made this connection and hear me out here because this isn't necessarily a criticism of the player involved but there seemed to be a couple of things happened at the beginning of the second half of course Kante was introduced to the game we've talked about his influence the other thing was Ndombele coming off for Skip who as we've mentioned we all agree has had a good season he's a great player he does what he does very well do you think there's a chance that it was returning to too much of a defensive imbalance midfield, a little like what we had against Crystal Palace? Because to me, it seemed to coincide with a point in the game where it started to sit back a bit more, inviting more pressure. Obviously, their fullbacks were bombing forward with the security of Kante behind them. But I'm not criticising Skip here for a second. But Joe, I'm curious because you were very impressed with Skip, but I'm curious to hear how you feel his introduction affected the game and to what extent it affected the shift in the balance. 
I think the balance of the game was already getting away from us at that point, as Dave just alluded to. But yeah, I we were talking about this when we were watching it. Skip looked great straight away. He he made a couple of really good challenges, the, the sort of really tricky ones where he's coming in from behind, but he was getting the ball. He was tidying things up. He just brought a bit of intensity back, which we seem to have lost. Problem is that wasn't the kind of player we necessarily needed at the time. I'm not saying that we had the kind of player we needed, but we needed something creative. And we're back to that problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We need we needed someone like Ericsson would have been, you know, the kind of player mm-hmm. you wanted to introduce in that situation. So I think he did really well. It's just we just don't have the options right now, do we? For for reasons we've already discussed. So I don't think there's much point dwelling on it too much because there's just several temporary issues that will go away as the squad gets a bit fresher, fitter, and players come back. I think looking at the substitution, it was a double sub, wasn't it? Uh, La Celso and Ndombele came off at the same time, didn't they? And on came Hill, Hill and, yeah. and Skip. And I think there's probably a high chance that was a predetermined one because of how little football Ndombele and La Celso had played. I mean, Ndombele was looking knackered the second he came on in the second half, quite frankly. And he also needed treatment at the end of the first half, if you remember too. So I feel like that may have been predetermined and... With the lack of Bergwijn on the bench because of his injury, Lucas on the bench because of his injury, people like Scarlett aren't that far along. The only other really borderline experienced option we had on the bench for those kinds of positions was Harry Winks. And if you bring Harry Winks on instead of Skip, you're just making the same kind of sub, really. You're bringing on a less creative, Mm -hmm. less adventurous player and one who is clearly and this isn't a put down of winks we will do that many times this season i'm sure <laughs> but one who is far less energetic slower far less robust than skip as well so i think skip was probably the only player he could bring on other than leaving and on and risking him getting injured essentially so like joe said he may not have been the player we needed to bring on but i'd I don't think we had the player we needed to bring on. I mean, I'm sure if it was Bergwijn or Lucas on the bench, they would have been an option for it. It's funny because you look at our squads and it's not as light as people think it is. Apart from Harry Kane, we do have two experienced and decent standard players for every single position. But we have been hit by injuries. We have been hit by a ruptured training schedule. And that means that we're tiring out a hell of a lot more than we should be at this point of the season. Certainly a lot of positives to take from that first half specifically. I think we can all agree. A tweet here from Cartilage Free Captain on Twitter. Uh, For 45 minutes, Spurs hung with a very, very good Chelsea team. And if I'm Nuno, I'm using that first half as a model and trying to figure out how to get 90 minutes of that kind of performance from this team. So I put it to you guys. I think we can all agree with that. I think that was the best we've played. And, And if there is a way we can get a full 90 minutes out of that, do you think it's just a case of coming up against slightly weaker teams or do you think there is a way we can translate that kind of performance into 90 minutes is it just a fitness issue or do you think there's a mentality issue what do you think is missing to turn that into a full game socks I think it's just time more so than anything else because as we were mentioning earlier we've got players that have barely even been in the country for a couple of months they need time to sort of acclimatize and develop themselves you know I don't know how many different central defensive partnerships we've already played this season and I'm not sure if Romero or Dyer have had the opportunity to play with each other yet outside of maybe one Europa Conference League game. You know, that was Emerson's second match only. And again, I sort of go back to Poch. Poch kind of had the same team almost throughout his tenure, but you saw it improve just as a consequence of time because all of a sudden, if you are, I don't know, Brian Hill with a couple of seasons under your belt, you've understood the pace and the strength of the Premier League. If you're Romero, you understand the kind of 
weaknesses and strengths of your partner. You know when to step up, when he sort of stays back or vice versa. If you're Emerson uh, or if you're someone sort of looking to pass him, you understand what his movements are like when he goes on the overlap. And football at this level is a game of fine margins. I mean, we saw it yesterday. Reguillon was, you know, ever so slightly off with his pass. Sun's touch was ever so slightly off as well in the first half. Those both go the right way. You could be one or two nil up. And it's that kind of familiarity that it doesn't matter how much money you throw at the situation or even how fit your squad is, that just takes time to build. That is a 6, 12, 24 month long process. And obviously against weaker teams, we'll be able to get away with maybe missing some chances and the likelihood is we'll create more. So law of averages will dictate that, you know, more chance to score goals, the more we'll get, the less likely we'll get hammered 3-0. But it is about just kind of exercising patience. And I appreciate it is a very, very tough sell because you're basically going to the fans and saying, we might not be very good for a couple of years, you know, do you mind mm-hmm. just sort of sucking it up? And I think a lot of fans are going to turn around and go, well, not if I'm paying sort of this amount of money for it or whatever it might be. And I do get that. But I think if we try and rush it, then, you know, what are we going to do? Sack the manager, start this whole process again, be in yet another transition? Like, who do you bring in? Like, there aren't really answers to these questions right now. So it is just patience for me. As, as difficult as it is, we just have to grit our teeth. Not just the Pochettino, actually, but even if we go as far back as Harry Redknapp, his main players were players that he inherited or, in Defoe's case, brought back to the club. I mean, Luka Modric and Tom Huddleston were going nowhere very fast before Harry Redknapp showed up. Same with Gareth Bale, obviously, too, and very famously. And they ended up, those two midfielders, Modric and Huddleston, ended up our first choice midfield, getting us into the Champions League 18 months after Redknapp joined. Gareth Bale ended up breaking that ridiculous sort of 24-game winless run across however many years and becoming the best winger in the league. Aaron Lennon was rejuvenated. These are all players that predated Lennon, even Okoto, Dawson, Chorluka. None of these were signed by Redknapp. They were signed in the three, four years before Redknapp even showed up, and he got them consistently playing together and understanding each other's games. Of course, you have to make signings. He brought in Peter Crouch and Wilson Palacios, not exactly marquee signings that mm. you, you expect to elevate a team from battling for sixth and seventh all the way to third and fourth. But they were the right players to complement what we already had. And that familiarity created a very fast attacking creative team. And unfortunately, fans seem to forget things like that because they get a bit jealous when they see Manchester United spending a hundred man sorry, Manchester City, United obviously do it too, spending a hundred million on a player they don't even need. So they want us to do the same. It's We're not in a position to do that. And the only real option we have is back this guy or go through the process again with another guy. And you'd hope with how well it all ended up with Pochettino, we'd have learnt by now that it pays to push through the pain a bit. But, I mean, Pochettino predicted it, didn't he? He's the one that coined the phrase painful rebuild for us. And maybe we should take heed of that now. I want to talk about just a couple of standout performers. We talked about Chelsea. We talked about Kante and his influence. I think Thiago Silva had a very good game for Chelsea. But on our team, I think a couple of defenders stand out. Maybe for the for the second week running, as bizarre as it is to say, with a 3-0 defeat, I think we actually had a couple of standout performers in defence. Eric Dyer continues to impress me. And I think he was clearly given the responsibility of handling Lukaku in this game. And for the most part, he did a very good job of it. And the other one, I think, who, who stood out for me was was Emerson, who, again, has had a lot of criticism recently. But just, just a couple of stats quickly on him. He made five clearances in that game. One blocked shot was a very good block, if you remember the one where he slid in. Uh, one interception, five tackles. He won nine of his 11 ground duels. Just watching him with your eyes, a really good performance, I thought. 
Second game running, he's had a very tough opponent in Alonso following his baptism of fire up against Zaha. He's probably going to have to deal with Tierney next week. What do you make of uh, of his second game? I don't understand the criticism. He's getting to tell you the truth. He didn't make a mistake that I saw. I think Alonso got one cross in all game, I think, which, okay, led to a goal. But um, I think he was aggressive. I think he was very difficult to get past. I think he was surprisingly good on the ball, actually, in my opinion. Seemed very calm, very composed, good passer, and very neat as well in what he did. I think we all want to see a bit more attacking intent, but... That'll come. He's only just joined. And like you say, it was two games against great wingers that pinned him back. And uh, I don't really see a flaw in what he's done so far. I just same way that Nuno's biggest mistake is not being Pochettino. I think a lot of Spurs fans are still pining over Kyle Walker and his rampaging performances over the past. Mm. No one's going to get there if they're not given a chance. But even in two games, I think Emerson is a marked improvement on everything we've tried at right back since Walker departed us. And as for Dyer. He played a good game. I actually think that Romero did incredibly well for such a difficult first Premier League start as well. He looked so quick and so composed. And the couple of times Dyer was caught out by Lukaku, especially one, it was right in front of me. Lukaku ran right at him, took the ball past him. I think Dyer actually ended up on his backside and Romero was there to mop it up. And I think he will prove to be a very, very good acquisition. We need Dave here because I can't help feeling we're being a bit biased towards our defenders, watching them concede six goals in two games and sitting here praising them. But I like to think I'm pretty honest and I'd criticise our players when they deserve it. But Dave, having watched the whole game, and I don't just mean the first half now, do you think we're, we're flattering our defenders? Do you think it was just one of those games? I mean, there was a deflection, there was a header from a corner. Do you think that our defenders warrant this kind of praise? I think the warning signs are from the Palace game, not from the Chelsea game in terms of the defence. Yes, some set pieces. Yes, Silver and Rudiger scoring their one goal each for the season <laughs> against you probably isn't a, a positive look. And Kante's was horrifically deflected, of course. My concern, especially with the comment that was made about heads dropping as well, is that Crystal Palace aren't great. And I think your focus needs to be on that when you're actually judging the defenders. I think, you know, you're right. Emerson looked like a good player. He looks like a good player. Romero did well. And you got beat by a better team. You know, it's, it's all about comparisons. You know, their right back is better than yours. Their centre back is better than yours. But for what it is, they were okay. I think with Palace, you have to bear in mind, we ended up with a centre back pairing 10 men down as well. We had 11 men at nil nil. We conceded all our goals as 10 men. And you have to look at the fact that our centre-back pairing ended up being Ben Davies and Joe Roden. Joe Roden, who has not had a minute at all this season, and Ben Davies, who is an OK short left-back. I mean, not short for left-back, but very short for centre-back. And I think you could put Kante in front of Roden and Davies and you'd still end up conceding three to Palace, to tell you the truth. Mm. Uh, so, so Dyer, Sanchez, Romero, I think between the three of them, we can get a good centre-back pairing. And with that, you can then build on going forward. I think going back to what we said earlier, sometimes these games are just decided by big players having big moments and and taking their chances when they can. And I think if there's one thing we can agree on, if we played like we did in the first half for a whole game or for most of a game, we should have a good chance against most teams. The question is, are Arsenal one of those teams? Obviously our next opponent. Suddenly this game has got a whole lot bigger. How do we think we're going to fare against Arsenal next week, Sox? I'm scared, but I'm always scared with Arsenal away just because <laughs> it's Arsenal just away because of the magnitude yeah exactly I mean what I would say is that I know it's no cliche but it is one of those that's true in terms of form going out the window with a derby where you know we went there two points from eight games bottom of the league scored four goals and got a draw 
even when we were sort of mid-table-ish in the early 2000s and they were off winning leagues, we didn't often lose at home. And, and when we did, we were never thrashed sort of 4-0. We had like the an old 5-4 or something like that, but we were always competitive. There were always kind of draws and the gap in, in quality between those two sides then it was absolutely massive compared to what it is now. I love that. The old 5-4 just casually like, you know, standard. <laughs> I mean, what I would say is they've obviously won back-to-back games now against Norwich and Burnley, but from I've not really seen either of those games, but from the stuff I've read from their fans, they've been very kind of underwhelming performances. Obviously, they've kept a couple of clean sheets, but their fans themselves have been saying like, okay, I'm glad we've won, but this isn't particularly encouraging. So I don't think they're in too dissimilar of a boat to us. So I think, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a poor game between two poor teams still kind of finding their feet, to be honest with you, which is not normally like the North London derby where it's like three threes and three twos and five fours. But I think it's one of the harder ones to predict, especially because, yeah. I mean, we obviously both have games in midweek, but we've sort of started the season on opposites where they've kind of lost their first three and they might win three in a row. If you count the sort of Carabao cup game uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, wherever it is we play and we might in, you know, it's possible we go in there off the back of three losses, but Mm. I'm struggling for a prediction with this one. It feels like one of those games that really could go any number of ways at this point. It's very hard to call, isn't it? And I, I watched the highlights of the Arsenal-Burnley game and I have to say they've got a few players that look exciting. I mean, I think Tierney, as I mentioned before, I think Smith-Rowe, Saka, they've got plenty of players who, are, who can make things happen and I don't think that's ever been their problem. But I think the clean sheets and the, the wins are probably slightly flattering to them, maybe like we were earlier in the season. And I saw a lot of problems in their defence. In the Burnley game, there were a few chances. They, they almost gave away a penalty that was lucky not to be given. And I think they still look shaky. And I think the way Thiago Silva and, and Rudiger handled our attackers was a lot better than what we'll get out of Arsenal. So I think if we can pick that up and do that, then I would make us favourites, but I don't like saying it. I'm very pleased we have Son having just completed a game against Chelsea instead of being thrown straight back in against Arsenal. I don't see any defender at Arsenal that is equipped to deal with him if he's playing well. And I think that will be a huge thing ahead of next week. Harry Kane... He can't keep this form up forever. He's going to score at some point and then he's going to go on a run at some point. And I know it's a bit cliche to say, but this is just the kind of game to raise him like like Phoenix. This is just the right game to get him back into the swing of things. And he loves scoring against Arsenal, top North he London does. derby, scoring, etc, etc. So I think despite the results we've had, if we go in with the right intent, and that's key, if we go in wanting to defend because we're away and Arsenal have picked up form, then they will beat us. If we actually go in and think, you know what, they should be far more scared of Kane and Son than we should be of any of their players, then we should beat them because on paper, I know football's not won and lost on paper, but on paper we are a better team still. And I don't really look at that Arsenal side and bar maybe Tierney, arguably arguably one or two others, I don't really see a player that, I mean, Saka obviously is going to be great and already is very good, so maybe him too. I don't see who I'd want to see in a Spurs lineup, so I'd, I'd be disappointed if we lost next week. I was going to kind of ask the question that I think you've sort of raised slightly, is that how do we approach it? Because do we revert to, I mean, I don't know if we have a type to revert to, but do we revert to the more kind of pragmatic midfield and set up like we did against City, bearing in mind we are away from home, the atmosphere, the first North London derby back with the full stadium, you know that even if they're not very good, their players are going to come out of the blocks and give it everything they've got for 10, 15, 20 minutes. 
Or do we, as to what you've just alluded to, set up with a team that has Ndombele, Le Celso and Hoiberg in the middle as opposed to the daily skip Hoiberg partnership and look to be aggressive from the off? I look at the Arsenal side and I don't think they'll be able to defend the way Chelsea defended because they don't have Rudiger and Christensen and Thiago Silva for a start. So I think if we go for the same approach almost especially because they're going to come out of the traps and play with their hearts a little bit and try and attack us, that will give us more space to exploit. I think I think the game is set up nicely. I know this is very typical optimistic Elio, but I think the game is designed to get the best out of our side if we actually show up with the right attitude. We love optimistic Elio, so long may that continue. Joe, Dave, where do you see goals coming from from a Spurs perspective against Arsenal? Because let's not ignore the fact we haven't scored many. How are we going to get goals against Arsenal in this game? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. So three goals in five games now and really not creating many opportunities either. So there's not an obvious place to come from. I thought Son's running looked really good in the first half. Again, it's the first 45 minutes were looking good. The second half, that energy was gone. So maybe if you've got another week of of training and another game potentially under Son's belt, he's going to be a little bit sharper and you might find that that can bring Kane more. And no Thiago Silva to contend with. And he doesn't have Thiago Silva to contend with. So I think it's going to be the guys up front because let's face it, the midfield, we don't really have goal scoring midfielders. So I think it's going to have to be Son and you would hope Kane getting back to some previous form. I'm glad you said that, actually, because I've got some worrying statistics here on some of our goal-scoring midfielders. It's been 29 Premier League games since Delhi scored from open play. Bergwijn has one goal in his last 52 games in all competitions, 20 games since Lucas scored, 25 games since Ndombele scored, and only one goal in 49 Premier League games for Lo Celso. Now, that sounds bad. Of course, there are other players, but... Is that specifically something that we need to be worried about? Or is it a case of just thinking that's not their job necessarily? They can still contribute to winning performance, to a goal-scoring performance. Or do you think we need to do something differently with those players, Joe? I I think that is something to worry about. I, I just think we keep talking about the difference between us and being in the top four. And the difference is the top four have got midfielders scoring plenty of goals. So we we need... this. This is why the fans get on our midfielders' backs. You know, and I know that we... You know, we don't like that. We don't like us. So, you know, Deli Ali gets a lot of criticism in recent time. I, I also do defend him, but he needs to score more goals. I mean, I, I didn't even know that stat, and that's that's pretty damning. He used to score goals. That's that's the mm. strange thing. I mean, he's a different player, and he he has more to his game now than he used to. But Delhi's an interesting one. Socks. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Delhi specifically. What do we do with him? What is his position now? Because he seems to be going under some strange metamorphosis at the moment, and I don't think even he knows what his best position is. Yeah, I think he's operated as almost like a box-to-box midfielder. I mean, mm. I think what's most telling is what Nuno said about him. I think after maybe the City game where he said Delhi's a runner, and I'm, I'm I think I'm paraphrasing only ever so slightly. So. I think that's what we're going to see him do, whether that's his best position. I mean, I think he's scored, you know, 20 goals plus in all competitions sort of in his best year in 16-17. I think it was something like 18 in the league. So he was putting up numbers that a striker would be proud of. But we're obviously not playing a formation that accommodates him in that way at the moment. In terms of some of the other players, I think there are mitigating circumstances for a few of them. I think most notably Bergwijn, who played a lot under Jose last season, but when he was played on the right, a lot of his responsibility was to be defensive because Jose trusted neither Ore nor Doherty. That's partly why Lucas played there a lot of the time. That's partly why Bale didn't play because he didn't trust him to do a lot of the tracking back. I think to Joe's point, I think one area where I might disagree slightly in terms of where you mentioned that the other top four have goal-scoring midfielders... 
I mean, Chelsea last season, I think, won the Champions League, and I'm not sure they had a single player hit double figures in goals. Mm. I think their highest goal scorer was Jorginho, and that's because he was on penalties. But they didn't have that striker, and they still obviously managed to finish in the top four and win that Champions League. And if you look at Liverpool as another example, obviously they've got Salah, Mane, who's probably been off the board for a couple of years, but their midfielders are probably more... They're not midfielders, though, are they? Well, even their midfielders, they aren't necessarily goal scorers like Henderson, Fabinho, Thiago, last season Wijnaldum. Now they've got Naby Keita, who is sort of made of glass, but he's there. Even Oxlade-Chamberlain. There's not really a single, you know, since, they, since Steven Gerrard left them or even since Frank Lampard left Chelsea kind of gone with the days in the Premier League of that kind of midfielder, but it's more so do you have them in other areas? So I am concerned about Lucas, a winger or a forward player or someone that has played a false nine, perhaps not contributing as much as he should. I am slightly concerned maybe about our fullbacks and I don't think Walker and Rose were necessarily double figures in goals and assists, but the amount of havoc that they caused that created space and an opportunity for everybody else, I think it is about squeezing out these 1% across the team and eventually you'll kind of get enough goals from everybody else. You made the Liverpool comparison there. And Elio, I know you've made a similar comparison in the past, talking about how Liverpool managed to score goals without those goals coming from the midfielders. Do you think that's the answer? Do you think it's not necessarily a problem that our goals aren't coming from midfield? I think our issue is that with the front three players, whatever combination we have, Kane and Son are the only reliable goal scorers. That's huge. Last year we had Bale, but didn't use him. And Delhi no longer playing in the final third takes away someone who, if he gets chances, will reliably put away double figures in the season. So I think that hurts us, but the Liverpool comparison is apt because they've been playing midfield threes of Fabinho, Thiago, Milner, Henderson, obviously, Wijnaldum when they had it. Those aren't prolific goal scorers. Wijnaldum was probably the most prolific of that lot the entire time he was there. So I don't think it hurts to have a midfield that is purely the support act, but you need all three forward players to be capable of getting a decent amount of goals, and we just don't have that at the moment. What I would say in reference to the stats that you mentioned, and Sox kind of skirted around it but didn't completely go for the throat, so I will, (laughs) the majority of those stats came with Mourinho as manager, and... Mourinho played an 8-1-1 formation with Harry Kane as a central <laughs> midfielder so, and Son up front. So how many goals do you expect your right-backs and left-backs to score because we had two right-backs and two left-backs every game under Mourinho? Dave, as the impartial outsider, how do you see that game going? What's going to happen when Spurs go to Arsenal? I feel like you guys need to chill out. <laughs> I, just, I think you're going to win this game. I don't see any reason why you're not going to win this game, to be honest. I mean, Don't, don't say that. Maybe this is my the purest form of trolling. Just say you're going to win this completely easily. I don't know why you're even worried about it. Um, We were talking earlier about Tuchel versus Nuno. I mean, that's a level. But Nuno versus Arteta is another level. At least (laughs) yours is actually a football manager. I just don't think you need to be as worried as maybe you are. And I think the goals will come from midfield in this game because I just don't rate their midfield at all. I think their defence isn't actually terrible. They've got a fairly solid-looking back four. But... In front of that, they've got nothing. I mean, Xhaka was suspended, wasn't he, for a couple of games. He's back now. So, you know, they've won That's their two news. games. So now he's back and now you'll roll over them. <laughs> I, I honestly I honestly think this is a, an incredibly good opportunity. Uh, guys, how negative Spurs. How negative are we being that Dave's having to perk us up? He's he's the one saying, come on, guys, well, you I, can I was be thinking, Arsenal. You know, this is such a down-in-the-dumps uh, <laughs> podcast after a 3-0 defeat. I thought I'd turn the tables. I, I genuinely think this is a great opportunity for you guys. It's an opportunity to not only get back to winning ways, it's an opportunity for Kane, it's an opportunity for Son. 
Arsenal are not good. And I can see at least two clear goals. Victory. Well, Dave, I sincerely hope you're right with that, but I'm not going to dare say anything further on the matter. <laughs> uh, what I do have here is uh, an email, uh, and this email is from Joe's dad, Mike Brooker, and this is brilliant. So Mike says, morning, chaps. Joe's dad here, the aforementioned 1960s glory hunter. Spurs' defeat at the hands of Palace on Saturday was painful for me in a number of ways. Firstly, I prefer that Spurs win or at least draw. Secondly, I'm sitting in third place out of 50 in my local pub's football predictions league and had Spurs down to win. But thirdly, and the main reason for writing, is that a relatively good mate of mine, a Liverpool fan, sent a WhatsApp to me immediately after the Spurs game simply saying, teehee. Prior to that, he was a good mate. (laughs) Pretty ruthless there. I just wondered how many people take the mickey by kicking someone when they're down after a poor result. It's not something that I would do. Keep up the good work. Hugely impressed, Dad. Well, that's lovely. Joe, what what do you say to your dad in response to that? I mean, if you've got an Arsenal supporting friend and you've just beaten them, if if we go to the game next week and we come away 3-0, are you going to give them a bit? Are you going to be humble about it? Are you going to rise above it? What's your approach to this? Do you think we should kick Arsenal fans or any fans for that matter when they're down is that part of being a football fan yeah I mean I don't know if I should be admitting this on a Spurs related podcast but I do have a lot of friends who support Arsenal and they've never been slow to give me abuse when they've beaten Spurs you know and and, and that's happened a lot over the 90s and noughties I've always been super careful maybe it's just the Spurs fan in me you know just being ultra cautious as we've just been, you know, Dave's been trying to get us to be a bit more optimistic, but um, I've always been super careful because I know it always comes back to bite us as Spurs fans. The one thing that I find quite interesting is since, and Sox mentioned the Martin Yole era when he started to support Spurs and get into football in that he's only really known Spurs on the up and starting to become a, a regular top four team, which is not what the rest of us have been through. It's interesting to me how Arsenal fans changed so much going into the 2010s and started to get particularly snipey and nasty. Certainly with me, it it got less bantery and a bit more poisonous where they started to get really threatened Mm. by Spurs becoming a a regular threat and starting to push them out of the top four. So I've, I've, I've always found that interesting. It's understandable, isn't it? Yeah. Elio, I know you're very reluctant to uh, to troll Arsenal fans. I think you're. Uh, I don't know if it's superstition or if it's just experience, but I know you. Uh, you definitely think twice before letting them have it. I just don't like it being done to me, so I don't do it then, and I hope for the best. Sometimes that doesn't work in my favour, but I also don't know that many Arsenal fans. For someone who grew up in North <laughs> London and in quite an Arsenal area, I, I found I found a way to avoid them. I have a couple of friends, one of whom you know, and maybe the odd colleague here and there, but I don't have that many Arsenal supporting uh, people in my life and that might be by design subconsciously who knows so I've never had quite as much temptation obviously with social media and all that it's very easy to put out sort of a a tweet or a Facebook post or an Instagram post sort of hashtagging every Arsenal related thing you can to your heart's content after we beat them but it's just not a nice trait Uh, I remember once upon a time we beat Man United for the first time in a very long time at White Hart Lane we beat them I think either 2-1 or, or 3-1. I think it was a 3-1. My dad had a couple of clients at that match who were Man United fans. And we met up with these guys after the match. I was a, I was a small child. I was 12 or something. And I think I, I said something along the lines of we beat the scum 3-1 to these grown <laughs> men who were doing my dad business. And the admonishment I got for that, I think, has just beaten all hubris out of me. 
I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I think that's a pretty standard comment from a 13-year-old. Well, look, I, I, I've been thinking about this. I, I feel like it's part of the fun, right? I mean, as much as we all like to pretend it's a whole lot more, football, it, it is a game, right? And I think part of it, you chant, you sing, you get excited. Surely there's got to be a place in the game for, for trolling your, uh, your rivals' fans. I mean, look, I'm going to come to the group's troll now for an opinion on this, Dave. I mean, obviously, big rivalry with Man United. Do you have any Man United sporting friends or do you manage to avoid them? Have you cut them all out like Elio did with the Arsenal fans? I don't have any Man United sporting friends. The Leeds United scum rivalry is... There's that word again. It's it's just... It feels like a, another level. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the same level as Spurs and Arsenal. But we don't even say their name. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> so it's... Um, I don't know. It's, I, it's interesting. I, I, I would immediately assume that my hatred of Manchester United is way more than your hatred of Arsenal. Now, that, that's a bold claim. Socks, how much do you hate Arsenal? Do you know what it is? I think as I've gotten older, it's been more about supporting Spurs than hating sort of other teams. I think when you're younger and you're a, you're a kid and you're at school and you sort of go into school on Monday morning, whatever it is, and you've got you know kids teasing you, I think you're more likely to retaliate. But yeah. now as sort of someone who likes to pretend to be a grown man... You know, I mean, I do despise Arsenal. I hate everything about them. I hate the red. I hate the plastic That's more like seats. It. That's what I want. I hate to the hear. fact that they it's say. I hate the fact that they say the Arsenal. That's the thing that pisses me off the <laughs> yeah, most. Yeah, that's horrible. I, so it, it's such a small, insignificant thing. I hate the delusion. Like, Poke the I, I hate them as much as you can hate sort of an institution that isn't like the know, Nazi horribly, party, horribly bad. Yeah, <laughs> the Taliban. <or> <laughs> No, look, I mean, if, if, if I wasn't a Spurs fan, I don't know if I'd, I'd have anything against them. But as I've grown older, it's the joy of us winning, especially against them, is enough. I think kind of sending a text to my mate, I, I think kind of to what Elio said, like, you know what it's like to lose and you know what yeah. the hurt is like on the other side. And it really does suck. And it's easy to kind of kick a man when he's down. But, you know, I'm just happy when Spurs win. That's enough for me. That's the thing at school, right? It's always much more of a thing when you're in the playground and it's right there and everyone's going in on you. And Elio, I know you've been basted into a few ill-fated bets with schoolmates back in the day. Tell us about your uh, illustrious gambling career in the playground. Uh, once again, I think GCSE kind of time. It was the FA Cup semi-final in 2001 at Old Trafford. I think Glenn Hoddle's first game sold candles last for us. And you were there as well, actually, I with was. me. My first day. North London Derby, um, yeah. Uh, I was one of six Spurs fans in my year at school out of about 150 of us. So I felt extra responsibility. And a lot of Man United fans and a lot of Arsenal fans, that was basically the divide across the whole school. One West Ham fan very randomly. Um, and this is when we were awful, right? This was Jerry this Francis. This was when we were absolutely dreadful. Yeah. No, not Jerry Francis. This was, this was George Graham going into Glam Hoddle kind of era. So I was massively outnumbered and as any wild animal does when it's backs to the wall, it, uh, <laughs> it goes too far in the other direction. Approaching that semi-final, I was so cocky about it and I regretted it the moment it came out of my mouth. But I, once it came out, you know what it's like. Once it's out of your mouth, you have to be steadfast. You have to stick to your guns. I gave him 100 to 1 odds that... Uh, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> 100 to 1. So he only had to bet a quid. I bet £100. And lo and behold... At some point, we um, took the lead. I think Gary Doherty, of all people, put us ahead. Yep. Then then the infamous last kick of Sol Campbell's career in the process of injuring himself while tackling Ray Parler, almost as if it was deliberate. They score from the free kick that he conceded. And 
the rest was history. And how did you have a hundred pounds? <laughs> yeah. How did you have a hundred pounds as a twelve-year-old or whatever? That's that's the. I did not. That must have been an awkward <laughs> conversation, Dad. Um, <laughs> I need to borrow some money. I did not buy any food from the tuck shop or anything like that at school for roughly two months to pay that debt. Anyway, I love that story. If, if anyone ever questions how big a Spurs fan you are, you just need to tell them that story and nothing else because that's real dedication to the cause. I also learned the hard way not to make bets of Arsenal fans. It was the infamous Mind the Gap season or one of them, but it was, it was the season where we were, I think we were a good 10, 12 points clear of them. We were going back a little while and I decided to make a bet with a colleague at the time who was an Arsenal fan. And it was before the season started as well. And we'd obviously at this point, we'd never finished above them. We'd always come kind of close, but we'd never gone as far as actually finishing above them. And I was like, we're going to finish above you this season. I'll make a bet on it. So we made a bet and there was no money involved. The terms of this bet quite simply were that the winner got to decorate the loser's desk with as much Spurs slash Arsenal memorabilia, posters, flags, scarves, whatever they wanted. And bear in mind, this was one of those kind of partition desks where you had the three walls around you. So there was a lot of there was a lot of real estate for Arsenal memorabilia. And basically that was it. I mean, I had to have it up for a month. So it was pretty brutal. And then, of course, the season went on. Arsenal started terribly. We started to fly ahead. It was all the mind the gap every day. And I absolutely lent into it. I milked it for all it was worth. I was I was sending him pictures every single day of what I was going to put on his desk. I was finding pictures of us lifting trophies. There weren't many of those. I was finding, uh, you know, pictures of all of our players scoring against Arsenal. I was like, this will look nice right by your computer. And, of course, we all know what happened. It went horribly wrong. They caught up with us, overtook us on, what was it, the last day or something? absolutely horrible and he as you can imagine rightly so absolutely went to town on me I didn't have a square inch of my desk that wasn't covered in Arsenal pictures posters flags everything he even had a dedicated Sol Campbell shrine there was a big picture of the Invincibles there was Sol Campbell lifting the Premier League trophy it was disgusting and the worst part was that people didn't seem to get that it was a joke I had it was a big company and I had people walking past my desk and turning going oh big Arsenal fan are you no no what real football fan would do this at work it's absolutely ridiculous so uh and yet despite all that yesterday you still showed up at the match wearing red trainers which are <laughs> directly responsible for our defeats you know it's funny you mentioned the red trainers because i remember that that game that that semi-final at old trafford that you mentioned we, we went to together you i think i feel like you still blame me for us losing that because i had a slight tiny bit of red on my socks that day does anyone else avoid wearing red to go to i mean this applies to you as well dave 100 percent. i yeah I have three red things, <laughs> and they're all England shirts. Yeah, that, I mean, that's fair. Right? That's England, it. You've got to have red, haven't you? So, Going back to that game, actually, Elio, it's quite funny because that was actually my first ever North London derby that I went to, and I remember the journey down. I was talking about this with your dad, actually, at the game, and I remember going there and listening to all the Chaz and Dave and all the Spurs songs in the car and having the scarves waving out the windows, and... You remember the game a lot better than me. Funnily enough, the thing that stands out for me most and one memory that's always stuck with me, uh, we got there pretty late. We we're pushing it to get into the stadium and there were a lot of Spurs fans around. Obviously, everyone really keen to get inside and not miss the kickoff. And everyone's obviously separated off. All the Spurs fans are together. The Arsenal fans are on the other side. And we're trying to get into the ground. And as you can imagine, there are police everywhere, mounted police, and it's chaos. The Spurs fans are pushing. They're trying to get into the ground. I know where this is going. They're looking to fight their way around and get to their gates and the police are just having a, a absolute hopeless time of coordinating and herding these people and they're shouting get back everyone stand back step back please step back and they're just being roundly ignored by this this rowdy group of Spurs fans and then suddenly this one 
big guy just turns around from the Spurs fans and faces everybody else, throws his arms up in the air and just goes, step back if you hate Arsenal, step back if you hate... And just everybody, everybody just started piling back and clapping and cheering and going along with it. And I just saw the, the policemen were just looking at each other like, that's brilliant. Why didn't we think of that? I remember it being followed up with a song that we probably shouldn't repeat in this day and age on air about Martin Keown to the exact same tune and uh, not overly favourably describing his facial features. So uh, I don't know if you remember that one. But we enjoy that chant. I do, and I thought it was pretty spectacular. 13-year-old me or wherever I was found it hilarious. We're not one of the best fan bases for chance. We're quite unimaginative. <laughs> we usually steal other teams, in fairness. Does anyone else remember their, their first ever North London derby? Or is there, are there any games that stand out in terms of from the history or just any big games that you can think of that are worth talking about? Strangely, whilst I was at university, I basically started working at White Hart Lane as a sort of skivvy for a, a few games just to earn a bit of extra money. And I happened to be there for the... 2004 uh, or 2005 season when um, Arsenal won 5-4 against Spurs at wow. White Hart Lane. And that was bizarre because obviously I'm supposed to be there to work and I'm uh, my job was basically to sort of take messages between like catering and VIP and logistics and everything that's going on in the sort of operations around the stadium. And I just kept hearing the crowd going mental every like 10 <laughs> minutes and I was trying to like run up to the sort of, you know, the various like entries to see if I could see who had scored and I, I had like no idea what was going on i assumed spurs were winning you must not and, have known uh, what the score was yeah <laughs> but uh yeah obviously it dawned on me that uh yeah we'd, we'd lost a nine goal thriller so a bit frustrating to be there and kind of miss all the key action but uh yeah Weird one. i remember that really well i actually missed the opening to the match because i as Sox is nodding his head he knows where this is going i had a <laughs> pretty spectacular car crash on the way to the match came out without a scratch but the the car sadly my first car as well it, it could not have the same said of it I did sit down right in time for Nabet's goal for that so that was good but interesting thing about that match nine different scorers for all nine goals most different yeah. scorers you've ever seen in a Premier League game I believe I remember you telling me about that before, Elio, and the, the policeman showed up just like, you're not going to a football match, mate. There's no way you're, you're in any shape. And you're like, no, I will crawl my way to Spurs. I deliberately told nobody about the accident until after the game. Didn't tell my mum, didn't tell my girlfriend at the time, didn't tell my sister. I got um, more than a little bit told off by everybody for keeping that under my hat and still going to football. But I convinced the one person that counted, and that was my dad. So we showed up. Well, look, more evidence of what a great Spurs fan you are. So uh, I think you're justifying your 10 out of 10 status. Favourite goal against Arsenal? And there's a few to pick from. Socks, what's your favourite goal? It might be a bit of an obvious one. And even though we drew the game, I think the Kane one in the 2-2, I think the 15-16 season, so not long ago. Was that with like the, the mask con- where he took his mask off? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. that one. It, not only was it a brilliant goal, the context surrounding that game was that was the season where Leicester won the league. And I remember the promos to it that BT mm. Sport were doing. And it was all about, you know, whoever wins this game is going to be the team that win the league. And obviously we drew and, and neither of us win it. And Leicester went on and won it. <laughs> but of all the years I've been going to White Hart Lane, I think that was the most kind of ballistic I'd ever seen the stadium. You know, bearing in mind we'd had Inter Milan at home and all sorts of other Champions League games and stuff like that. And many victories against kind of Arsenal and Chelsea at that point. It was like somebody had just thrown like a grenade into the stand and you had people falling all over each other. People were bleeding, glasses were breaking. It, you know, it was like you kind Jesus. of got through war. It, it was incredible, like for all the right reasons, you know. It, it was, It was. even though we drew the game, it's, for me, football, 
you know, maybe it's a bit romantic, but football isn't so much about winning or losing as it is those moments. And even though it was disappointing that we, I think Lloris let a really poor Alexis Sanchez shot go through his hands or something in that game, even though it ended like that, it was still one of the most precious like two minutes I've ever had kind of at White Hot Lane. It was like everybody just kind of collectively got something out of their system. And yeah, that one for me for sure. It's funny because that's exactly the goal I was thinking and for exactly the same reasons. And I, I wonder if there's a little bit of, especially at that time, a feeling that we were starting to completely supplant Arsenal as a regular top four team as well. It just felt like everything was changing. Mm. And I also just love the way that Kane runs off celebrating and takes off the mask to reveal like it was him all along yeah. that, that like scored the goal. <laughs> I think in terms of the quality of the goal, it, it's very hard to argue against that one. I think Defoe in the 4-5 scored a great goal after a very good Maisie dribble. And there's uh, there's been, uh, obviously, the David Bentley from 50 yards, the Danny Rose from, from 30 or whatever it was on the volley, which was ballistic. And I think Danny Rose, for me, that and one other, both scored by auctionman, actually. Danny Rose against Arsenal in when we beat them for the first time in God knows how many years we were fighting to get him to fourth that season. We just lost to Portsmouth, I believe, as well in the uh, FA Cup semi-final. So we were going into that kind of uh, almost a bit deflated. We thought, OK, we're out of the FA Cup. Season's going to peter out. We're not going to get fourth yet again. And then all of a sudden, Danny Rose, a player that I think he was playing his first game for us as well. And he must have been 18, 19 or something. Just scores this ridiculous goal. Uh, probably still the best moments of his Spurs career. And we he go did go But we played really well that game as well. I mean, Gomez made some spectacular saves. I remember one from Van Persie. Bale obviously kind of went full face of Spurs with his performance and, and his winner later on in the game as well. So that's one of them. I think the other one for me is the Lennon goal in the 4-4 early on in Harry Redknapp's reign to equalise right at the end and that random sort of Cypriot Spurs fan piled in on onto the bundle of players afterwards because Arsenal were still just about good at that point and we were really bad at that point. We'd obviously had two points from eight games. We, we'd had our first game under Redknapp sort of drawing with Liverpool or something like that. Then all of a sudden, we have the craziest game against Arsenal, 1-0 up, 2-1 down, 3-1 down, 3-2, 4-2. I think either Genos or Bent got us back in it to 4-3. And Lennon just did something that Lennon didn't do, which was score. And he scored such a memorable, important goal. And I think the sheer outburst of emotion from that, much like the goal Sox and Joe described, I think was almost unparalleled, even though it was only an equaliser. The thing I remember about the Danny Rose goal, obviously a ridiculous goal when his debut was so young, especially, but it was the post-match coverage on Sky or whatever it was at the time. I think, you know, they do that little outro when they cut to the adverts and Sky decided to play Kiss from a Rose by Seal, which was just genius. Dave, you look like you're racking your brains trying to think of your favourite Spurs Arsenal goal. I mean, I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you've come up with. Well, I've got two screens, so I've been YouTubing uh, greatest <laughs> ever Spurs North Good London man. derby goals, and uh, I, I love it. And and the one that I remember, and the one that I I literally have just seen again, and just thought it's oh, really good first touch, and it was a long way away. Uh, is is the David Bentley goal? Um, and I do remember that game, and I do remember that goal, and I do remember going, oh, it's good, it's good for Spurs. Brilliant. Well, look, we still have Challenge Elio to come, which we'll jump to soon. We've, we've covered a lot already today, which is brilliant. Just a quick note, please do follow us on social media. Our socials are at Plus Dave Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And we can also be reached by email at plusdavepodcast at gmail. 
fpllinkedin.com. Uh, and also, if you'd like to join our FPL League, we've had a couple of listeners join recently, which is great to see. The code for that is JB3PSV. And uh, while we're on that, we've got a new leader in the FPL League, would you believe? And that's someone in this very group. Joe, you've taken over me. I'm not happy about this. How do you feel? Uh, I'm surprised because I've got Danny Ings up front, so I don't really know how you having Ronaldo has yeah. allowed me to overtake you. But um, I think Mo Salah did me a big favour at the weekend, and yeah, I seem to have some good defenders in at the moment. Well, don't get too used to it. I mean, you see what happens to teams that go top of the league early on, so I wouldn't get too comfortable up there. Yeah, Brilliant. Well, that takes us to Challenge Elio. So uh, if, if you listened last week, you will remember that Elio did disturbingly well, and I have a bad feeling he's going to do pretty well again this week because we've got a few questions that I've been looking over, and uh, some of them might be tricky. Some of them might be tricky. To remind you of how it works, we'll ask Elio some trivia questions, and this week they're all Spurs-Arsenal-related, of course, with the North London derby special. If Elio doesn't know the answer, we'll put it out to the floor and see if the others are able to answer and steal the points from him. So we'll start off with a pretty straightforward one. Two men have scored a goal in the North London derby for both Tottenham and Arsenal. One of them is Jimmy Robertson. Who is the other? Does anyone else think they know without saying the answer? To put a little bit of extra pressure on Elio. I don't think... Campbell never scored against us for Arsenal, and I'm not sure if he scored against them for us either. Won't have been William Gallas, I don't think. It's a genuinely hard question, actually. I, um... I'm going to have to hurry, Elio. I might have to put it out to the others. Do own goals count? No, no, I should have said. Otherwise, you'd okay. have probably been betting on Gallas. Adebayor. It is Adebayor. Well done. Correct. You can, have, you can have three points for that one. Brilliant. The next question is another North London Derby question. The most appearances made by any player in North London Derbies over the years is Arsenal's David O'Leary. Uh, in second place are two Spurs players joint. Can you name them? Two Spurs players joint. Hmm. For most North London Derby appearances. Yep. One of them, and I'm going to go with him partly because he played for us for a very long time, partly because he also played for Arsenal for a significant amount of time afterwards, Pat Jennings. Pat Jennings is wrong. Oh. It goes back out to the floor. Guys, here's your chance to steal. Two most North London Derby appearances by Spurs players, joint between two. Socks, what are you thinking? I was thinking Sol Campbell. Yeah. For the same reason that Elio mentioned Pat Jennings. Yeah. I'm trying to think who came up in the quiz question a couple of weeks ago where it was most league appearances. I thought, I don't know if there's any value there, but I'm trying to think who was on that list now. So Campbell could be a good place to start, though. What do you think, Dave? Dave switched off. <laughs> We've lost Dave. He's still looking at Spurs' greatest YouTube goals against Arsenal. I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> I mean, I would have guessed Sol Campbell, but I don't know anything. So Let's go for Sol Campbell. Sol Campbell is wrong, and it passes back to Elio. In that case, I'm going to go for players that have played a lot for us while both sides are also in the top flight because we obviously spent a year out in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So, number one, I'm going to go for our record appearance holder with Steve Perryman. Correct. Very good. You get another go? I'm torn between two for the other guy. You're saying they're tied as well? They are. I think even though he wasn't a youth product or anything like that, it's not like David Howells or someone like that, just because of how long into his career he played for us as our first choice centre-back and our captain for the most part as well, I'm going to go with Gary Mabbott, but that's a pure guess. It's a very good guess. It's the right answer. Well done. Elio gets the points again. Come on, guys. You're letting me down here. Right. The next question is a slightly trickier one, 
And if Elio gets this in one go, I'm going to be very impressed. But he has impressed me before. So we talked earlier about the 4-4 match, 2008-09 season under Harry Redknapp. Mm-hmm. Can you name our lineup that day? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> Moving on. No. Pass. <laughs> give it a go. Right. Give it a go. I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll give you... No, no. Can, okay, I ask, see. can I ask for a clue at some point rather than you just give me a clue from the start? I mean, I can give you like a, a, what I assume was the formation. But when will it bounce over to us after he's guessed like the first incorrect one? As soon as he gets the one wrong, then it bounces back and vice versa and we'll, we'll tally them up. Must have been Gomez in goal. Correct. I'm trying to think of our goal scorers. I know Lennon didn't start the game. I'm pretty sure of that. So I'm going to go with David Bentley because he puts in the lead. That is right. He um, looks like a 4-5-1. Uh, it might not have been, but that's what I make of it. I'm going to go with Darren Bent. No. Ah. However, he did come off the bench. He did score a goal. So I remember, I think Alan Hutton was the right back that day because I remember Adebayor beating him to one of the goals on the line. So he was right back. Alan Hutton is correct. I think Benoit Asuakoto might have been the left back. I can't believe that's the first time we've mentioned Benoit Asuakoto on this podcast. <laughs> we, we need a whole episode dedicated to him next time. That is correct as well. The centre-backs, I'm not... Jermaine Genus would have been in, yep. in that team. He scored the think. third goal. Genus is correct. Yeah. That's three. I think Tom Huddleston also started because he was the one, he took the shot that the goalkeeper spilled and then Darren Bent followed up with a tap-in. Hell yeah, you might have made your match. That was also correct. Ooh. This is good having Elio's cousin <laughs> on my side. I'm living up to the big introduction from an hour ago. <laughs> uh, I'm struggling to think of the centre-backs. Like, I don't know if we played Chorluca centre-back. This was before Galas. I was thinking Chorluca, surely, because it, it was Redknapp. So, yeah. Chorluca must have been. King would have been injured. He probably would have been injured as well. Chorluca is correct. Oh, well done. So, it was Hutton, Chorluca, Okoto. We're missing another centre-back. We've got Huddleston, Genus, Bentley in the midfield. You're missing one centre-back. You're missing one midfielder. Two midfielders. And a striker. I have a feeling Gareth Bale started that game, but I'm not. Is that an official answer? It's just a gut feeling. It's not. Guys, not guys, you've you got to intervene. Are you, are you taking his uh, his whim on that one? <laughs> uh, Bale's a difficult one because, yeah, it took so long for him to get going under Redknapp. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he would have started, but it feels I would be annoyed if Bale was the answer because it's quite obvious. We could just go through them if we're really struggling for other ideas. I mean, you've got five already, so you've almost yeah. cleaned up half the points. Did we say? Did someone say Darren Bennett and it wasn't correct? Yeah. yeah Leo In that case, that. the striker was probably Pavlichenko because we'd sold Keane and Defoe and we only signed them back that January and it wouldn't have been bloody Fraser Campbell. So it has to be Pavlichenko by process of elimination. It was Pavlyuchenko. I think next week nice. we're doing challenge socks. I think we have a new champion in the house. <laughs> that is correct. Very good. So keep going. You you still need uh, <laughs> one centre back and two midfielders. I'm more nervous uh, for this than I am the game on the weekend. <laughs> Could it be um, Dawson? I don't remember him. I'm trying to think of who got like woefully skinned. Like I'm trying to think of the goals, and all I think of just Alan Hutton again and again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've done Alan Hutton. I mean, that sounds like Dawson. <laughs> that was too early for Gallas. King would have been injured. I'm more confident on Bale than I am Dawson. We've had uh, Mendes then. Pedro Mendes. Yeah. We sold him a few years before. 
Do you know what? It may have been Ricardo Rocha, the Portuguese. We're scraping the barrel here, aren't we? <laughs> it may... I, there's a reason we conceded four goals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Alan Hudson, we went over that. <laughs> I have a feeling it may have been Russia, but I'm not sure. I'm going to need an answer from you guys soon because Elio's itching to clean up. You didn't give me anywhere near this amount of time. <laughs> oh, I think, it, I think it's, more like, it's more likely Bale than Ricardo Rocha, who I honestly had never heard before. Joe, I'm assigning you team captain temporarily to give me an official answer based on those you've discussed. What's your answer? Let's play it safe. Let's go for Bale. Bale is correct. Oh. Well done. That's another point. I mean, if you're going to give people that amount of time, the thing is... Pipe down, Elliot. We've gotten under his skin. <laughs> so we still need two more. We have a centre-back and we have a midfielder. And I'm going to I'm gonna rush you guys because Elliot deserves a bit more of a chance on this one. Genus, Bentley, Huddleston and Bale are the midfielders we have. So there's two wingers. So it would have been a third player in the centre of the park. It wouldn't have been another winger. Oh, of course, Luka Modric. Ah, yeah, of course. Very good, very good. Luka Modric is correct, leaving you just one more to get. It's 2008. Yeah. You're missing a centre-back. It's League Cup time. Dave knows where he's going with this. Just say it, Dave. I literally only remember one thing from 2008, and that's Jonathan Woodgate scoring a goal. And that is the right answer. Very well done, guys. That's brilliant. (laughs) I love seeing that. That's great. It's about time Elio got showed up just a little bit, but in all fairness, the new signing has has been (laughs) a great debut. Uh, Well done, Sasha. Well done, everyone. That's great. If you'd like to contribute to Challenge Elio and send in some questions, please do. As mentioned earlier, our socials are at Plus Day Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can email us at plusdavepodcast at gmail.com. Please send in the hardest questions you can think of because if Elio doesn't know them, it looks like socks might. So just don't hold back. Really obscure ones next time. And of course, if you have any comments, if you have any questions, if you have any points we'd like to discuss, anything in terms of what we discussed today, please, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you, all of our followers, all of our listeners all around the world. It's always great to have back. So thank you all for listening. And to you, my guests, Thank you very much, Joe, Elio, Dave, as always. It's been a pleasure having you today. And Sox, well done on a solid debut. Brilliant to have you in the team. How have you enjoyed yourself today? It's been good fun. I mean, capped it off with a win. So we talked about earlier about gloating against Arsenal, but I'm definitely going to gloat against Elio. So I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure for the rest of this week. We've ended on a much more positive note than we started, haven't we? I mean, we were all doom and gloom and uh, now we're suddenly in better spirits. We'll hopefully have a few of you next week. We're going to look forward to the next game and hopefully discuss how we have dismantled Mikel Arteta's Arsenal and kick-started our season, much like they predicted, putting two or three goals past them. Fingers crossed. It's not just wishful things but thanks everyone for listening hopefully we'll see you again next week you stay classy Spurs fans and we'll see you again next time here's Deli Alley. here's Lucas Moura oh they've done it